following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Today's reading is from Matthew 9, chapters 13, uh, 9 through 13 and 18 through 26. The calling of Matthew. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. He said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came, were sitting with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. While he was saying these things to them, suddenly a leader of the synagogue came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus got up and followed him. With his disciples. Then suddenly a woman who had been suffering from hemorrhages for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. For she said to herself, If only I touch his cloak, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her said, Take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. When Jesus came to the leader's house, and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl got up, and the report of this spread throughout the district. Thank you, Karen. Um, we have this sort of ongoing uh, series that we pop in and out of from time to time called What's Saving My Faith? And it's a chance for uh, people who are part of the artisan community to share a personal story about what's keeping them going in the faith. Um, I've heard so many of you tell me over the years that faith is a struggle for you. And in, in many church settings, that's not something you talk about. You just kind of keep that to yourself. But we firmly believe that talking about it is one of the ways that you can make it through and that talking about the challenges you face in your faith can build up the people around you, even as it helps you understand yourself more and maybe kind of come out of that experience um, in a different way. And we've heard from so many great uh, people already, and today we're going to hear from Jay Newman. And I have gotten just a little bit of a preview of what Jay is going to share, and it's really wonderful. I can't wait for you to hear it as well. Uh, would you join me in welcoming Jay Newman? I'm not this short, Scott. Well, uh, I just wanted to 
I'll start by thanking you all, um, especially Brian and the members of the leadership team for uh, letting me share and have an opportunity to, to be here. Um, I, I wanted to uh, just thank you um, personally for giving my family a, a place to belong and have a, a, as a spiritual center. So um, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Um, this, uh, this talk is called Fathers, Sons, and Ghosts. Um, and uh, I'll just start. I'm going to tell you that I'm a writer. I'm not a speaker, so I'm going to read a little bit, and you're just going to have to be okay with that. <laughs> so long ago, when we were really young, and I mean my, my family, my siblings and I, we used to use rotary phones, and we listened to music on cassette tapes. And the way to know... That wasn't supposed to be funny. That was just true. <laughs> the, and the way to know... If something was true or not, at least at my childhood home, was to hear it said on TV. How else would you know if something was true or not? And nowadays, maybe most of us are a little bit skeptical of this, and maybe that's rightly so. Our instinct is to be protective, and I would just wonder, what is the cost, perhaps? How is this affecting us on other fronts of our life, uh, our lives? where our ability to relate to one another feels so thin. So back in the 80s, before you could ask Jeeves anything or before you could Google anything, you had to work with the little libraries in your house. You had to work with the books maybe to verify anything about the world. And I don't want to paint a picture that I didn't have books growing up. I had Dr. Seuss galore, right? I read every book. Um, maybe that's why I ended up becoming a poet. but. What I didn't have was a lot of wisdom books. And so when I had really big questions, I would go look for wisdom from my parents. And my parents were artists, but they weren't super helpful with big questions that I had as a Korean American adoptee. And so I'd see my mom before Adobe airbrushing, my, my dad was a photographer, airbrushing trees out of pictures. Or I'd see her creating these complex Ukrainian eggs. And I didn't know until I was like 20 that you put lettuce in a crisper because my dad always kept film in there. But <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> but somewhere along the way, I realized that I was going to have to dig into books if I wanted to find some of the answers that I was looking for. Because even as like an eight or a nine-year-old kid, I thought, this is not it. TV doesn't have the answers. So when I had difficult questions in this pre-internet era, uh, and when real wisdom was in short supply in my house, I had no other option but to turn to God. Um, and what's more, I felt like he was talking to me. Um, in such an experience where as long as there was a father and I could see myself as the son, somehow it worked. The way I can picture this for you in Rochester is at the Rochester Museum and Science Center. You know those two red domes out? And you talk on one end, and then you can hear it on the other end. One of you is smart enough to know how that works, but don't tell me, ever, because I don't want to know. <laughs> That's just how I, I hear the spirit kind of working. Um, but uh, as we kind of think through, like, today, I, I just want to share a little bit of my story with you. And I, I wanted to start with a question. Where do we look for authenticity of who we are and what we believe. 
For some, it's family, and for others, there could be traditions involved. For others, it might be the latest book you read or the latest interview that you heard that kind of rubs up against something true, something that feels real to you. Well, when I was eight months old, I was adopted, and I arrived in JFK. And my mother loves to tell this story about how when I arrived in America, I'd thrown up all over myself, and I was wearing uh, paper towel diapers. Yeah. And uh, that's just a story to tell you that back then, I was Korean before it was cool. <laughs> there was no BTS. There... There was no K-pop drama. <clears throat> and it, there was really no concern for Korea being a nation that was personifying resiliency. So in fact, all of my youth, I had to defend my heritage and where I was born and tell the kids in my class or where I grew up, I am from Korea, because they told me it wasn't a real place. All I had to go by Korea was this little book that came with me when I was adopted. It said facts about Korea. So I memorized like populations of Korean cities. Or I would know that I was supposed to be naturally inclined to Taekwondo or things like that. <laughs> but growing up in a one uh, traffic light town in the 80s where I was the OG, I was the original Korean American adoptee of my generation in the town, I felt this overwhelming sense of needing to fit in. Even two years later, when my sister was adopted, and even two more years later, when our neighbors decided to adopt a Korean sibling uh, pair as well. There were four of us in our town, and we were the only minorities in the entire town. Um, and it presented a lot of challenges for me, especially as a became a man, and I realized that I had a lot of questions. But through this experience, it gave me plenty of opportunities to draw close to God and know him in a very real way. So in my mid-20s, when I lived in Jamestown, New York, I was working as an adjunct professor. And, to, well, you know, I made a lot of money, so. <clears throat> <laughs> but just for fun. Just for fun, I would also work another job as a teaching artist in, in a really rural district where my job was uh, to go into a classroom and integrate poetry into whatever subject they placed me. So I went into math classes. Yep. I went into science classes or English classes. The... The hardest one, of course, was 7th and 8th grade bells, handbells. <laughs> uh, we spent a lot of time talking about tone and, uh, well, I won't bore you, but like, I had to make it work. <laughs> um, well, the first time I ever walked into this district, I realized that it was going to be a long day. And if I had ever wondered what it was like to be Moses coming down Mount Sinai with my face glowing... I felt like I knew it that day because when I walked into that really rural district, I realized, oh no, they've never seen an Asian before. <laughs> I realized I was the first one and that uh, I was going to have to do something before I started to try to express my love of poetry. They didn't care quite yet. So the first thing I did is go into the classroom, pull down a map and point right here. This is where I'm 
this is where I'm from. Let's just, let's just do that. Uh, and then the conversation went something like this. So I said, this is where I'm born. And they said, wow. And then I said, yeah, that's right. It's a long way away from Chautauqua County. And they said, wow, that's really, really far. And I said, yes, that's right. And then they said, are you Chinese? And I said, no, I'm not Chinese, but it's kind of close. It's called Korea. And then another girl said, are you from Japan? And I said, no, I'm not from Japan. I'm from Korea, with a K. And then she said, and she said, are you sure you're not from China? And I said, no, I'm not Chinese. I'm American. But... I was born in Korea. I know it's complicated. I had to put a pin in it because it could have gone on and on forever. And I had a job to do. I was there to teach them that poetry wasn't as bad as they thought it might be. And then, honestly, um, there was spots within poems to find real peace, like going into a forest. And my job was to teach them where to find the berries and the great places to listen to rain. So I did that, and visiting different rooms and integrating poetry into different conversations uh, until I had this experience where there was this one boy (laughs) right at the very end. Uh, My job was to get them ready to do a public reading, Uh, fifth and sixth graders reading poetry. So that was a kind of scary thing because we didn't really know how it would go. But I remember there was this one boy who would never, ever participate in whatever I would try to do. I'll just tell you, um, I thought I was being as creative as I knew how to be, but he just hated everything I ever did. (laughs) And um, he would just sit at the back and never participate, never write anything. He wouldn't even write his name on a piece of paper. But on the last day, he sat kind of with his head slumped, like I I was the ferryman of an outpost of Dante's Inferno, like I was ruining his life. And um, he would just kind of finally chirp up on the very last day, and he said, hey, do you work at the number one China buffet? And I, I understood that he wasn't being racist. He actually thought that I worked there. And I said, no, I don't work there. I work here with you <laughs> and your friends, okay? And he said, oh, okay, okay, not really believing me. And then he said, wait. Are you the guy who walks alone at the graveyard? And then I realized again, he was being dead serious. And I said, no, that's not me. And I know that this is a really long way to open this sermon about what's saving my faith, but as I've learned, context matters. So what's saving my faith is that I've had to use it my whole life. Uh, And it's a muscle that I feel the more we exercise the easier it is for us. For long stretches growing up, I felt misunderstood or disconnected to the vast majority of people. In fact, the only time that I ever had a group of Asians who looked like me growing up and who weren't like the joke of some movie, kung fu movie, was at a rest stop once where this Asian tour bus stopped and everyone was eating Burger King and Sabaro and just kind of filled into this rest stop where my sister and I are looking around and like, this is awesome. <laughs> um, but um, having to rely on my faith has been a journey, especially as 
I've tried to be an English professor and an English teacher through most of this in this body. And one of the experiences I had was actually when I would teach down in Dunkirk, New York, living in Churchville. So I would drive down to teach once a week, and don't be jealous, I had a 1991 uh, Chevy Lumina with a tape deck. Don't, don't be jealous. And, uh, well, the tape deck broke. So there was a place uh, called the Radio Shack, right? <laughs> where, I, where I bought one of these like little radios, little handheld radio. I called it a Colby radio because that's what it said on the front of it. I don't actually know why, why I remember that. But um, I, when I was coming back one night, um, and you know, that's like a terrible stretch to drive in winter. Um, when I was coming back one night, it was snowing. I had just graded a lot of papers. Uh, I worked at MCC and JCC at the time. I remember thinking, like, this is, this is going nowhere. I'm just, like, my life is just grading uh, research papers, and I'm not getting the opportunities that I thought I might. And I was just having it out with God in the car. And... Uh, Nothing. I have to tell you that I would try to listen to WGR to hear about the bills or something. And yeah, right. On that little radio, nothing would come in. The only thing I got was this like one station that would come in as I got a little closer to Buffalo. And right as I was in the middle of my rift one night, um, driving back at like you know the class ended at 9:45 in Dunkirk, and then I would drive back to Rochester. Right as I was coming back one night. The song hit me like an arrow. It's the Bonnie Raitt song uh, that you just heard. And um, I heard God singing it to me. And I heard it as a worship song. And I know I'd heard it a lot of times growing up. But uh, I heard that lyric, I can't make you love me. And it just wrecked me. So obviously, for a lot of us, there's different tests that prompt us to reach for that divine dial so that we can hear God and that we can pray. And sometimes when I look out at the world or I read one too many news stories, I think of Maggie Smith's poem, The Good Bones, where she tries to imagine how to explain to her children that this world really is beautiful, even though that it's dark and sometimes just ugly. Um, I'll read just a little excerpt of it. She writes, life is short, though I try to keep this from my children. Life is short, and I've shortened mine in a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways. A thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from them. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate. Well, sometimes I think we talk about being optimistic or pessimistic, and that seems wrong to me. Uh, It's just... That's it. We just have a default. Um, I don't try to ignore the condition of the world, but I have to tell you that I feel now that um, I'm at peace with being a faithful forager, somebody who follows this kind of internal frequency. And I spent a lot of time thinking about that car ride where I heard that Bonnie Raitt song and how I felt like inside me God was turning the dial as well. All the time, 
almost monthly, I have this kind of moment where I think, am I on the path? Are the things that I'm doing lining up so that I feel like I'm on this road with God? But almost all the time, I feel like that path is just so tenuous. And I feel like I need to be reminded all the time that in the words of the poet Antonio McAdoo, path maker, there is no path. Um, and maybe you felt that too. Uh, and it seems to me that it's very easy for us to see the things that are important to us become obscured as the door to our true selves, our real being, can get hidden. And um, if this is helpful for you, maybe just to be reminded that there is a time-out space where our stories and our situations that seem so consequential can be set on pause and we can get a little relief from ourselves. And that there's a place where I feel heaven and earth do dance together. So the main message for today is that your citizenship and mine in Christ's kingdom, it does not need to be punched by a custom worker who thinks that they are the vanguard of how things work. And this is what I learned in the most roundabout way through realizing the, that even though my naturalization papers say that I am an American only and that I no longer have Korean citizenship, that's not the way it works out in my day-to-day experience. And what I would say is for anyone who's feeling that they're seen wrong, just remember that that's not how God sees you. And the, the Pharisees who want to classify, sort, and other anyone who doesn't fit into their version of normal, as I said, they are not the vanguard of what's what. So when I was a kid, I hated to stand out. Uh, I was lucky that I could run kind of fast and that I, w- I, was, ta- I was tall, Scott. I was tall then. <laughs> just stop growing. <laughs> but throughout sports, uh, I found a way to kind of blend in until high school where I was just ready to, to just be who I was going to be, whether people liked me or not. And for years, I would just kind of scrunch down in poor posture. I had the world's worst chap lips, and I would tell all my jokes to the kid sitting next to me, and everyone would think that they were so funny. Because from the very, very beginning, I've been trying to figure out ways to convince people that I knew what it meant to be American. I knew what was funny. I knew what was what. But somewhere along the way, my father taught me something deep and meaningful. He said, you have to stop letting the punchline land. And... And so when I went away to college, everyone thought that it was cute that I wanted to be a writer and that my English was so good and that my experience, in that experience, it just set me at odds with this projection of what people saw out of me and this person who I knew I was. Something always felt out of focus. 
and it set me on a decades-long uh, private seething because of that disconnect. And for anyone else who's feeling like they're not seen for who they are or who they want to be, I just want to say you don't have to walk that decade alone. What's saving my faith? It's not a what, it's a who. It's you. Even after spending most of the last 15 years in academia and education, I still believe that the most important thing about me is my faith, even though my kid would disagree. In fact, when I was helping him look for his phone the other day, I thought it might say Dad or Jay. It says, the guy who cooks chicken. So in the last 10 years, I've worked at a seminary, at a middle school, at a private high school, and at a college. And there's been really good things, some bad things, and some really ugly things. I've seen some of the most kind and amazing kids. I'd call them my neighbors. And I've also witnessed this hoarding of power and this puffed-up faux faith of Christian nationalists who are merciless in their efforts to destroy God's diversity of believers. And in spite of this, I refuse to lose hope, because my hope, it does not come from them. It does not come from governors or from news pundits or the people who claim to love families but persecute mine. My hope comes from the identity that Jesus instills in me. He says that you are a minister. He says that you are a poet. He says that you are a theologian. He says that you can build community. Most of my life, when things were hard, I just went straight to my father. Not my dad, the guy who would tell really bad jokes and would try to show me how to shoot a layup. And not the other shadowy figure, my birth father, who I used to dream about chasing in hotels while he wore a brown suit. But from these early meetings with God the Father, he became as real to me as the guy who would burn french fries and call them golden brown. (laughs) Or the guy who still hasn't seen Home Alone because he falls asleep every single time. With God informing me, I learned to be resilient, even when I didn't know how to express the totality of my experience. And so as far as my faith goes, I think it's strongest when I engage in double vision, one eye fixed on the horizon and one gazing through the immediacy of now. Just like that gospel passage you just heard where you see Jesus completely present with the woman who needs healing and, oh yeah, I'll go, I'll go bring her back too, right? My faith works best when it operates out of double vision, and I don't just look too far ahead, and I don't just look at what's in front of me. Because our Lord is the one who can feed 5,000 with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish, who can turn water into wine, and who can make a life for a kid who came to America, to JFK, wearing diapers made out of paper towels, so that he could become a poet, a maker of barbecue, and, in my own estimation, Rochester's premier under-eight soccer coach. (laughs) 
close to Father's Day, and I'm closing on the bit about fathers here. Fathers are not fences, they are docks. And every day, Jesus trains me to see how going to the Father is like taking a walk to a safe harbor. At this place, everything is ordered and accounted for. This place where God is, the small things matter. Each of our experiences matter. The lost coin, the lost sheep, the mustard seed, having few talents, yeast. Well, God is the accountant, the shepherd, and the way maker. God is the analog hands of the clock. God is the quiet in the morning. God is there in the extra box of broth that you bought, and you were sure you bought in the pantry, but you needed when you were making soup, and you freaked out, and then you realized it was there somehow. That one's really just me, but I'm, I'm just trying to share another, another way of understanding. Uh, God takes things that are burned and chopped and forgotten, and he restores them. We just need to have the vision to shuttle back from the world with God, our forest, our refuge, to the one where there's things here, even inconvenient things like mosquitoes or cats that wander in your yard or people who like Pepsi. (laughs) So who are you allowing to influence the way you belong to God and the way you belong to others and yourself? If you've forgotten your work, or if you've not quite discovered your value in God's eyes, remember that finding the trail to a faith-centered refuge can be accelerated by understanding that you've been adopted to. This is the essential move to God. When we have very little, that's where he has much to give. If we see God alive in our skimpy grocery budget or our next staycation, we could take comfort in knowing that we were not meant to have everything we ever wanted, and that that's a good idea. And yet, there are real pearls in the world right now, and you can claim yours. Don't let other people uh, tell you that you can't find citizenship in God's kingdom or that your documents are not valid. Don't let others tell you that you aren't a child of God, because adoption into God's family means that the table is yours, and there's no scarcity issue for God in his room to love. That's a human myth. The table of God is the most makeshift, holiday-stretching piece of furniture of all time. It encompasses all the card tables in all of our houses, all of the end tables, all of the TV dinner stands, all of the tables that sit on the ground, the high-top tables, all the altars, the dashboards, the desks, those questionably clean tables at the mall, and the nicest unpurchased tables at the pottery barn that no one will ever buy. (laughs) All of those tables stretch out in every single direction, saying to you and saying to me that we belong, all of us, all of it, shapeless and ceaselessly in flux, your place at the table is found within. And when you realize that the garden inside you is the only seat that you'll ever need, 
you'll understand why adoption is the trope paramount. And in simplest terms, it means that you don't have to eat alone. It means that you belong even when you step away from the table and someone says you don't. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.